Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you listening. Hope you're doing okay. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Julie Meyerson, author of a novel called Nonfiction. And I should also say, actually, I didn't set out to write this novel thinking, oh, it's time I wrote about addiction and I feel brave enough now. Not at all. I think it's more, I was writing, trying to, I was writing a novel and there were all sorts of other things in it which aren't in it now embarrassing things. It was about something quite different, actually, in a way. And I, this is how I write novels. I sort of write and I write. And as soon as it begins to feel more truthful and more exciting, I go with it kind of thing. But I don't sit down and plan anything. And this bit, the stuff about addiction, the stuff actually that the novel starts with about locking a child into the house because they're trying to get clean, which we did go through. Suddenly, when I wrote that down, I thought, yes, I want to, I need to write this. I need to write this down. And that's that beginning of the novel, which is very true in my mind, is what catapulted me into writing about it. All right. That was Julie Meyerson, author of the novel Nonfiction, available now from Tin House. Nonfiction is the official January pick of the Other People Book Club. Nonfiction is a story about love and addiction, about family and betrayal, about mothers and daughters, about death and grief, and about recovery and creativity. This is a very powerful and beautifully written novel by Julie Meyerson. I had a great time meeting her and talking with her about her life and her work. 
That conversation is coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get going, a quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe at bradlisty.substack.com. It is free. The newsletter is simple. I let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this podcast. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and sign up. Likewise, there is another People Patreon community. If you listen to this show regularly, if you get something from it, and you like the work that I do, I hope you will consider joining over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, a book club subscription, all sorts of stuff. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. So my guest once again is Julie Meyerson. Her latest novel is called Nonfiction, available from Tin House, It is the official January pick of the Other People Book Club. A quick note that you can join the Other People Book Club over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Julie Meyerson is the author of 10 novels, including the best-selling novel entitled Something Might Happen and another called The Stopped Heart. She is also the author of three works of nonfiction, including Home, the story of everyone who ever lived in our house, and another book called The Lost Child. As a critic and columnist, she has written for many newspapers, including The Guardian, The Financial Times, Harper's Bazaar, and The New York Times. And she was a regular guest on BBC TV's Newsnight Review. She lives in London with her family. I had a great time meeting Julie Meyerson and talking with her about her excellent novel. Very pleased to be spotlighting it in the book club this month, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Here she is, folks. This is Julie Meyerson, and her novel, One More Time, is called Nonfiction. When I write a novel, I literally don't know what I'm writing till I've finished it. So when I say I was in the middle of this novel, I was writing something. I didn't know quite what it was, but I'd written a lot of it. I was trying to shape it and I didn't have a title for it. I don't think I had any sort of title, actually, not even an embarrassing one. And I just literally was reading the Sunday papers in bed and the book section came up and at the top it said nonfiction. And it just, I think instantly I thought, has anyone ever called a novel nonfiction? I'm going to call my novel nonfiction. And it was so right, but it was so random the way I came across it. I wasn't I mean, I think I do think that when you're writing a novel, you have like these sort of antennae that are out all the time, whatever you're doing in the world, not when you're writing, when you're out there in the street, whatever you're doing, this consciousness of your novel is there. And if something suddenly comes to you that's part of your novel, you just notice it immediately. It's kind of it's more like a trolling net, I sometimes think. You catch things in it. And when I'm writing a novel, I have this net cast very wide. So I saw this word and the word did something to me that it wouldn't normally do. Obviously, I've seen the word nonfiction in my life a lot. And and it was it was all one word. It had to be that too. It just happened to be nonfiction, not hate, no hyphens, nothing like that. And I just knew it was my title. And from that moment, I suppose it would be true to say that I was so excited by that title that it probably did help me continue with the book and shape and understand what I was doing. I suppose I would say that I was perhaps subconsciously already writing a novel called nonfiction. I just didn't quite know it. 
if that makes sense. What about your publisher? How did your publisher receive news of this title? <laughs> well, it, actually, it was my agent. I never show anyone, I never tell anyone, not even my husband, anything at all about a book I'm writing until I consider it to be finished. So yes, I delivered a book to my agent called Nonfiction. No, she loved the title. It, it is problematic, though, because if you Google Nonfiction by Julie Myerson, well, at the moment, actually, I think the book does come up. But, you know, generally, it's not not ideal for Google. It's not a great title in that sense. I think it confuses booksellers a little bit. But I also know, of course I do, that it's there's a tease contained within that title. And for me, it was the right, it was the right tease. It, it's, you know, it's a book about the stories we tell ourselves and the fact that actually everything in a novel is true, whatever you're writing about, in a way, it comes from a part of you that's true. And so I'm not putting it very well, actually. But it, the, the title just felt right to me. Well, you have also said of this book that it is, quote, completely made up. It is also completely true. <laughs> that's true. So that kind of speaks yes. to what you just said. I think that you can kind of apply that rubric to any novel, yeah. even a novel that's like super fantastical mm. or imaginative still has its personal and autobiographical elements. I think it's a double thing because I think um, I was partly playing against that idea, which actually annoys me slightly. And I think it's more true of women than men, that when someone reads a novel by you, you know, it probably applies to men too, people immediately want to know which bits have really happened to you, which bits are true, whether it's the sex or the bad events or whatever it is. or They, they, they want to pin that on you. And I find that frustrating. But then I have actually in the past written quite a lot of true things about my life and got into trouble for that. So I also, a part of me knew that people would be on the lookout for that. And I think there was another strange part of me that was sort of thinking, okay, bring it on, come and get me if you want. Um, because actually, yeah, I think this is true too. I found myself towards the end of this novel, really, as I was writing it, realising I was deliberately writing it to make it sound absolutely true. I wanted to write a novel that sounded like it was true about me, Julie Myerson. It's actually not. It's hugely fictional. In fact, there's only one strand in it, which is not fictional. But I wanted people to think it was all true. And I wanted them to ask me that and for me to be able to say, no, it's not true. <laughs> this is ridiculous that people always think everything you write is true. In fact, I mean, my fourth novel years ago was about a Victorian woman with an amputated leg who lost, who gave her baby up, had to give her baby up to the founding hospital. And that character is more strongly based on me than any character I've ever written. But of course, nobody wondered about it because she was it was Victorian times and she had one leg. So they didn't say, oh, that's you, isn't it? But actually, she is the closest to me, that character. So, I, But I like that about that's... fiction. It's like you have this, nobody knows which parts of my books are true. And there are other things in a lot of my other novels which have really happened to me and no one has ever guessed. I quite like that. I suppose it's natural for readers, especially if it's a first-person narrative or if there's a protagonist that shares the same gender, or the same age range or something with you, for them to assume that you're writing about yourself. Yes, is it? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I read your novel and you call yourself Brad in it and, so, and, you, and you mentioned this podcast. And so, of course, you're putting out a lot of things to say, this might be about me. But I still didn't assume that every single thing you'd written in it had really happened to you or that it was true. And I think, you know, why should we? I, I love books that are partly true and partly not. And actually, as you're saying, so many, almost every novel I've written has got something of my lived experience in it. Of course it has. But I don't, you know, people don't always know which part that is. And I, I love that about books. 
I'm not. Yeah, like the, I do too. Also, the, do the too. pleasure of novels is not in knowing that it really happened to the author, surely. Well, not for me, it isn't. No, I'm the same. I think, uh, you know, every book has its form, right? I mean, yeah. it, so, some books maybe hew closer to the quote unquote truth than others. But what I always say is that I don't have a good enough memory to write memoir like it I, I i have to fictionalize to make yeah. a book work <laughs> i don't have i don't have the recall to just like recall. pull it out yeah to pull it out of my brain in a way that you know makes sense i can barely remember what happened yesterday <laughs> so even, and i'm not a diary keeper but even so even in a memoir and i mean this is also what my book's about how could we say you know i have actually written a couple of memoirs but it's only my subjective truth obviously and you know other people who might have been there or thought they were there or 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 think they know what happened, again, to say that isn't how it happened. And of course, that's true. So there is no such thing unless someone, in fact, actually, how can you possibly write a memoir that's true? You can't. The memoir is always going to be your perception of things, as is a novel. Yeah, I agree. I think these yes. distinctions get frustrating for me. I think the only way, I'm writing a memoir right now, and it is based on a very detailed diary, which gives me the confidence, I think, to do oh, it. that's interesting. But in the absence... Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. and the... And, in the absence of that source material, I feel like I would basically just be writing autofiction if I were writing a but memoir. It just starts to get blurry. In your diary, how do you know that what you wrote down that day, you were telling the truth, you know, what you weren't putting a gloss on it of some sort, even to yourself? Or do you know that? I mean, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to think I like to think I wasn't. But yeah, I mean, the question's always there. And what I'm finding in writing it is that I'm still fictionalizing a little bit. Uh, just to make the book work, like connective yeah. tissue, filling in little flourishes like that I didn't write down. Like, what was the weather like that day? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just have to sort of. Sounds interesting. Is it teenage? The... Are they teenage diaries? Well, it's about 2020. Uh, oh. It's about a specific time in the year 2020 amid the American election and the pandemic. Oh, wow. okay. I was very interested in that, like that that fall, that autumn. Yeah. Oh, well, you probably and do know the... that it's true then, actually. If it's that recent, you probably have a sense of your writing down the, to the best of your ability the truth, That's which is interesting. For the most part. Yeah. For the most part. So anyway, I, just, I guess I just really responded to that aspect of your book. There's an urgency that I feel in this book and that I will often feel in books like this, where there is a kind of blurry line between reality and fiction. And... However fictionalized this is, it did feel like it really came from the heart. It's a, it did, and yes, it did. I think for American listeners or, or people who, I mean, this book is being published, what is it, a year or so after it was published in the UK? Yeah, I yeah, I think um, 18 months actually, I think, yes, yes. Uh, okay, so there, there are people, I think, stateside and maybe in Canada and elsewhere who are new to this book and who will not understand some of the backstory that I think informs it. And mm. I think it's worth at least giving people an idea of that in broad brushstrokes. Yeah. And this is a book that its major themes are, uh, among other things, addiction, marriage, parenthood, adultery, mothers and daughters, and writing itself. Yeah, right. Have I missed anything? No, I think it's funny because I would almost put writing first, but I can see why you don't. But yes, yes. I mean, I, I easily right. could have, yes. you know, it's just the way that I probably yeah. jotted it down. But uh, this is also a book, 
and feel free to disagree with me. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll pose it as a question. Mm-hmm. It feels like a book that is informed at, at, in part, in some part, by this thing that you were embroiled in <laughs> back in the early aughts. Yeah. Uh, there was a column, and I don't think American listeners will likely have a frame of reference, or most won't. But Good. you <laughs> wrote a, a column, right? You and I won't make you relive it all in yeah. granular detail, yeah. but you wrote a column for the Guardian called Living with Teenagers from 2006 to 2008. Uh, It later became a book. And there was a controversy because uh, in writing about it, you were writing pseudonymously. You were writing under a pseudonym. Well, no, actually, anonymously, but yes, carry on. Anonymously, sorry, not pseudonym. Yeah. So nobody knew that it was you, at least Mm -hmm. at the outset. And then there was also uh, your son, Jake, had some issues with uh, drugs yes. and that showed up did that show up in a book yes that showed up in a book I mean it's it's confusing I can see why you're confused I can explain it but, yeah. but yes you're right please and it is the, the column you're right was it 2006 to 2008 that sounds about right I, the newspaper came very good newspaper the Guardian my, who I trust and I read them now um, came to me and said they knew I had teenagers they said do you feel you could write something about what, te- what it's like living with teenagers and they even said that and my first thought was, I don't know whether I can, because it would embarrass the children too much at school. Then I said, I think I talked to my husband, Jonathan, who's also a writer, who's very supportive. And he said, well, look, you can only do it if you do it anonymously. You can't possibly put your name on it. And so I said to them, OK, I'll write. I think it was going to be three columns to start with about living with teenagers. And I'll do it anonymously, but it must be anonymous. You mustn't tell. In fact, they were told they weren't to tell anybody. I think something like two people at the newspaper knew it was me. Um, and I think that would have been all right, actually. And also, I was quite careful. I, the teenagers were, they were definitely based on my kids, but they had different names. They they weren't exactly the same as my kids. They looked different. They had slightly different personalities. Anyway, I mean, to cut a long story short, the column had a massive positive reception and went on for two years, which I never intended. Um, but obviously, we were glad, you know, it was it was rather wonderful that people liked it. And amazingly, the newspaper managed to keep my name out they managed to keep it anonymous again I think the editor of the whole of that part of the paper didn't even know it was me but obviously people suspected um and the one thing I didn't do and I think I didn't talk about drugs in this column at all and and in fact in in fact because we were at the same time going through a difficult period with our eldest who yes was becoming addicted to skunk cannabis and it was very hard I was writing the column and so I had to, because I wasn't going to write about that, I had to almost invent his, so the eldest child became a completely fictional character who was fine, who was doing well at school and everything was great. So in that sense, it was quite a fictional column actually. Um, And it's funny what happened at the same time, sorry, there's no way of telling this without it being a bit boring really, I was writing a book, a non-fiction book about a Victorian girl called Mary Yellily. Who, which was commissioned from me, actually. She was an illustrator and she died at the age of 21. And somebody said to me, would I like to write about her? And I thought, yes, I would, because I want to, I love the idea of investigating a person who died at 21. She left behind a book of watercolour albums. And I suppose I was thinking, what if that's all that's left of a person who died at 21, what else can I find out about this person? I was busy researching that whilst writing Living the Teenagers, whilst dealing with the problem of our son. In fact, it had been going on for a while by then. And I just found myself writing it into the book, The Problem with Our Son. Sounds a bit complicated, but just in snatches, really. And at a certain point, I think I was halfway through the book and I said to Jonathan, my husband, I don't know what to do because I'm writing this book and I don't seem to be able to write it 
without writing about Jake because it was a book about loss. It was about a mother who'd lost. In fact, she didn't just lose Mary. She lost something like seven or eight of her children to TB. This is the 1840s, I should say. But it was a devastating story. And we were having a very bleak time. And Jonathan said, probably very wrongly, he said, write what you have to write and we'll panic about it when you finish the book. So I finished the book and I ended up writing a book about our son and cannabis. And I think it's a book, if anyone's, the the real problem with that book is the journalists pounced on it and criticised me before anyone had read it. It wasn't even available for anyone to buy. It It wasn't even in proof. So the story was leaked to a newspaper. So I had the awful... Well, this is the worst aspect of it for me. I was—I had a book that was written about by people who hadn't read it. I've always been happy to be criticised for my work, for something I've written. I will always stand up and say, maybe I was wrong or no, I meant well with that. But with this book, people hadn't even seen the book. They couldn't go away and read it. And terrible things were written about me in the press for about six weeks. I think with hindsight, and it was terrible, actually, they, they doorstepped my family, my my mother-in-law, my husband's ex-wife. It was just terrible. It was as bad as it could get. Wait, wait, wait. You mean they doorstep, meaning like journalists showed up? Journalists showed up at people's houses to find out bad things about me, which they then, it actually was quite funny. There was a headline in the newspaper saying, the picture of me saying, is this this Britain's worst parent? (laughs) It's actually, well, we laugh about it now. It was terrible. It was extremely traumatic. I'm not really asking for sympathy because I had written the book, but nobody had read the book that I'd written. Anyway, the the book, nobody bought, then then the book did come out. Nobody bought it. It had turned toxic. It was terrible. But I think, it's funny, I haven't talked about this. My heart races when I talk about this, you know, because I did after it have a kind of, I don't know if you call it a breakdown. I became unable to function after this for quite a while. But I think the main reason was that I felt such guilt at having done this to our son because what happened was the newspapers am I allowed should I say yeah the Daily Mail gave him a lot of money they gave him several thousand pounds for his story and he was an addict and he wasn't at home at the time and we weren't giving him money obviously you never give an addict money I mean this is what my book's about and he was given money by them and I felt extremely responsible for that um and I think it damaged him to a certain extent he's fine now you know we're, we're He's good. He's in our lives and he's much better. But at the time, it was just devastating. And I think the, the, I've never really said this, actually. I mean, the harm I felt I'd done him made me feel that my writing was dangerous in some way, even though actually, I mean, to be honest, if anyone, you know, if you were to read the book, it was published in the States and actually the reception in the States was far calmer. One or two journalists sort of said, you know, should she have written this? But nobody attacked me as they had with the tabloids in in Britain. What's the name of the book? It's called The Lost Child, and it's and the lost child in this book is really Mary Yellily. But of course, it's our son as well, who was temporarily lost at the time. I felt, I felt I couldn't really write about a mother losing all her children. Well, at the time, I felt this without writing about being a mother myself and what I felt about what we were going through. But I think when I look at it now with a sort of cooler head, I think it was. It was a misjudgment. I shouldn't have published that book. It was the wrong time. I mean, maybe 30 years later I could have. And, you know, there were important things to be said. But having I mean, having said that, it was only the press who attacked me. So many readers, good people, once it came out, wrote to me, sent me their stories, said how important it is to talk about this stuff. And I did, I should say, there's another reason why, because obviously we didn't. I didn't publish this book without thinking hard. Jonathan and I and the publisher talked about it. We felt there was this crisis of skunk addiction in this country 
different from the opioid crisis, but skunk was a, is a very strong form of cannabis. And parents in this country didn't know what it could do to young male brains. And the sort of problems that our son had were happening all over the place and people didn't really know to avoid this and to worry about it. So that was part of my um, part of why I felt it was all right to publish it at the time. But I think I was in it. We were in I got to say, I, I got to well, I got to say that uh, I feel I felt when I was when I was reading about this and like reading about skunk cannabis, it made me feel yeah. old because I was like, I smoked pot when I was younger. I felt like I smoked fairly strong pot, but like nothing that really rose to the level of this like in terms of its impact is there a, is there a new think, weed that i'm not aware oh, yes, of <laughs> no, there is do, do not know about skunk i mean I, we obviously we weren't aware of it either no the, the, the pot that well we called it what we called we called it dope when i was at university that the boys i didn't i tried it once but i didn't really smoke it i've never done drugs but the boys i shared a house with smoked dope and it was that's marijuana that's far far less strong the i forgot you i've forgotten all the details now but this is in the book the thc content of skunk which is actually what most young people on the streets of Britain certainly now will be buying skunk when they buy their cannabis because they'll all say to you, oh, no, mum, I know where it's from. It's it's not strong. It's from a really nice guy who sells it to me. But it tends to be skunk. It damages the frontal lobes of, the, of a young male brain, particularly men, actually. It has, I think it can make young women very anxious, but with men it can actually do damage, something to do with their frontal lobes not being fully formed or something. At the time, we investigated all of this and... Yeah, it's very. I mean, I'm surprised you don't know about that. Actually, it's in fact. I mean, I'm. I think it, I'm just in my garage. I yeah, think I'm tuned out. <laughs> I think it was an American friend, actually, a friend living in New York, who first got us to talk to an expert about it. About, but anyway, I don't. I I sort of I try actually. The reason I'm, <laughs> I try not to talk about this too much because these days, because it's very hard to talk about it without talking about our son, and obviously I haven't talked about our son for years in this way, and I don't. Um, and it's why it's super ironic that I ended up writing a book. This novel is about drug addiction. I never thought I'd touch that subject again, but somehow it felt like time. But yes, but so as you were saying, I do have background here. Um, you know, I've got a record. So people, I knew how people would approach this book. And I knew, it's true. I mean, several journalists in this country who interviewed me when it came out 18 months ago said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And you know, I can't really answer that question. It's a novel. It's not about my son. It's about a girl. I, I have a daughter who's nothing like the girl in the book. The daughter is a completely fictional character. She's nothing like any of my children. But yet I can see her very vividly, that daughter. As I wrote about her, I really knew that girl. I knew that child very well. Um, and I, th I think I would say it's definitely fiction. But of course, I couldn't have written it if I hadn't, if we hadn't been through what we went through. So I think that's how yeah, I approach I mean, it. it. I, obviously, I couldn't have written it and wouldn't have written it, but well, it's an, it is. It's fiction. an extraordinary set of circumstances that you had to endure as a writer who became kind of tabloid fodder or whatever. Yeah. The press really came after you in a personal way. They totally and did. And yeah. I think I think that's why the title nonfiction does have an element of provocation to it, and there is something cre like creatively courageous and logical from my perspective about you kind of revisiting this subject matter in this novel. And I think you've said something like, uh, what is the quote I have written down? I'm addicted to trying to be as truthful as possible about the world that I see around well, me. I am, yes. That's the only I, reason I write. I, ha well, I, you know, I think that's why most of us do it one way or another. And I have to say that from a writerly perspective, this notion that you would live, live through something like you've lived through and not 
write about it somehow or make art mm-hmm. about it somehow. Oh, that's interesting. Th- that just seems that seems uh, illogical to me. Of course, you're gonna like. How could you not? Is the question. Yeah. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's, it's nice of you to say that. I think because I think what really happened is, truthfully, after those, it was 2009, I really did fall apart. When I say fall apart, I, I couldn't. I, I found I couldn't drive our car down the street. I ha- had to pull in and stop and Jonathan had to come and get me because, and I knew what it was, I felt dangerous. I felt like I was going to hurt somebody actually. Then I couldn't get on a bus because I felt trapped. And then I found the funniest one, I couldn't get on an escalator in a department store because there was something about that, that I don't know, the, tri- the trip you have to take up an escalator. I felt like something terrible was going to happen. And obviously this is the definition of someone having a bit of a, you know, small mental breakdown. And I went off and did some meditation, a six week meditation course my doctor sent me for and it, which saved me, actually, it took away, didn't get rid of my anxiety, but it helped me deal with it. And slowly, you know, I wrote another book, I wrote a novel called then and I slowly began to become myself again. And our son was all right. And, you know, the family felt all right again. And I think things felt whole. And I think all this time passed, and it's true, I suddenly a year or two ago, I began to feel braver, actually. And I think I'm quite angry about what happened. And I hadn't, I'm not a very easily angry person in the sense that I'm not, I'm, I'm never very conscious of experiencing anger. It's the one emotion that I don't particularly, I probably do feel angry, but I don't, I'm not conscious of it. And I, I partly perhaps because I do channel things into writing. But I think when I was writing this book, I was suddenly feeling quite brave. And I think that, as I was saying to you, it was a sort of thing of, okay, come and get me. I'm ready for you now. Come and get me. This is a this is a fictional novel. If you want to take me up on the fact that, yes, it touches on things I've experienced, do that. Do that if you want to. And I was ready for that. And I think also, I mean, I was actually, as I was finishing it, um, I did actually have breast cancer three years ago. And I was literally writing the final edits whilst just before having a mastectomy. And weirdly, so by the time it came out, yes, it came, after, by the time it came out, I'd been through breast cancer and I'm all right, touch wood. Um, but that also made me brave. You know, there's nothing like, a brush with something like that 
you, it puts things in proportion. And I felt actually, I wish that what happened about the lost child could happen to me now because I'd handle it so much better. I would be much less afraid, I think. Um, although, of course, it was because I felt I was protecting my family that I became so afraid. Um, I feel I have less to lose now in a way. Anyway, I'm already the worst parent in Britain. So what's what's to lose? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, nowhere to go but up, right? <laughs> yes. that's, I mean, that's that's an unbelievable thing for a writer to go through. And you just wonder why the press fixated on that. Was there one particular written reaction to the rumor of the book? I mean, these people had not even read the book, right? It's they, funny. No, they were, in a way, I mean, it's fascinating the way it happened because it really was a leak. It was a leak. Someone leaked a very, a very nice benign little piece. You know, the bookseller, like you're a bit like Publishers Weekly that you have. They do a little thing about books up and coming for next year. So, so there was a little bit about it and someone leaked that to a paper. And immediately it's the tabloids are you know the daily mail is terrible they immediately smelt blood they thought this is there's a story here and they did actually ask me for an interview right then and i said no because we'd agreed we wouldn't do any i wasn't going to do any publicity or talk about Hassan. i just wanted the book to stand for itself sink or swim exactly as it was but because of that that got their you know that got them more excited and um they then tracked down people talked to our son but what was i going to say yes that is funny in a way the tabloids over here, they always behave like that. And perhaps we should have expected it. But I think what really hurt, you know, there are people, novelists who write columns, and I've been a novelist who wrote, in fact, I wrote two columns a while ago. Um, in fact, I've written three columns in my life. They're looking for things to write about. And so they wrote about it. But So several writers, I'm not going to name them, but it was infuriating, wrote about my book and what they thought about it without having read it. And that is something I would never do. You know, the idea of writing about a fellow writer's book that you haven't read. Um, so that was terrible. And they, they just looked at what was said in the tabloids and regurgitated it. So that was very bruising, actually. That was the worst part of it in some ways. Anyway, it's a long time ago now. And I'm quite, it's, so it's well over 10 years ago. I think at the time, I could not see how we could ever recover from it. I felt the damage I'd done to my family and my children was irreversible, actually. Um and I suppose I wasn't sure I'd be able to write anything ever again. And it's amazing to to realise now that, you know, we are, the family's fine. I'm still writing. I, I'm amazed that we were able to come back from it, but we were. But I had a lot of support. And I should say I, I had a lot of support from good friends. You know, when something like that happens, you certainly discover who your friends are. And nearly all of them stood by me. One or two didn't. And it's really interesting when you find one or two don't. But, um, you know, I had a lot of support actually as well. People wrote things in defense of me as well. Oh, well, that's lovely. Yes. And I think that I think that it's important to just have that framework for people so that they can understand nonfiction as a, a creative work in its own right. And yeah. I love I love the idea of you coming back and writing this book and sort of sticking your chin out and saying like have at me, you know, like I feel like writers, ha like artists absolutely have to have the freedom to uh, explore mm. like things that are per deeply personal to them. It just seems crazy to start setting up rules. I mean, obviously you never want to damage, you know, you don't want to intentionally hurt somebody with your work, but there is kind of a fine line. There is a and fine line. I think most people understand, most people understand that artists have to have mm. creative freedom in that way. And that most artists are working in good faith. But I wonder whether I think there's a bit of a taboo around mothers. You know, I, I think mothers, there are things mothers aren't supposed to do. 
particularly maybe it's better now because I'm a bit older so I'm no longer kind of one of those mothers but I was you know I was only 45 46 at the time and very you know you are you're not supposed to do these things as a mother I don't think I think some there was some of that in the tabloid response anyway sorry though I interrupted what you were saying though Mm, yeah it's an important point and I think it also speaks to the experience that you had in the aftermath where suddenly you couldn't drive a car I mean I can imagine I mean look if somebody called into question my conduct as a father that would be deeply hurtful to me and would be traumatic and I mean, to be a mother and to have your ability to be a good mother called into question, to be called the worst mother in Britain or whatever yeah. it was, that's that's a lot to process. I think, I think what was worst about it was that I actually felt they were right. In my darkest moments, I thought they were right. I did at the time. Mm. Well, speaking of that, the mother in your novel, nonfiction, <laughs> and, and her husband are struggling with their daughter who is deep in the throes of addiction and is in and out of their house, is mostly out of their house, living wherever, Mm. you know, on the streets or in people's apartments or wherever she is. They don't really know. Mm -hmm. And there is a real painful sense of what it is like for parents of children who are struggling in this way, that sense of helplessness. It felt really true to life. And it's a, sadly, it's an experience that a lot of parents go through. This is not some isolated thing. Like this is all over the place. And I think like what it brought home to me is the fact that when your child is struggling with addiction, like the advice, the professional advice that you get is to not help them. Mm Like help them if they want to go to rehab, but like like you said earlier, don't give them money. No. Uh, don't provide them with what it's like a false comfort almost because it only will exacerbate mm-hmm. the problem and perpetuate the cycle of addiction. Yeah. Right? It's the worst. I think I do say it in the book. Actually, it's the only illness because it it is an illness really that where you the only thing you are able no you are actively told to push your child away. And I can't think of any other thing, you know, my children have been through all sorts of difficult experiences, actually, and things where I've been able to help them or try to help them. And we've all worried together and we've been able to offer comfort and love and take care of them. And you're not able to do that. In fact, you're actively told not to. And if the child rings your doorbell saying, I just want to talk to you, you're you're supposed to say, no, unless unless you're coming to talk about getting clean and going to rehab, I won't speak to you about it, about anything. And we were actually, you know, we Yes, sorry, I don't want to be too specific actually about a son. I think it's not fair. I've talked and written enough about him. But yes, it's the most painful experience imaginable. And I also think it kind of, there are the parents who've who've done it and been through it and the parents who haven't. And I think the ones who haven't, bless them, they, they have no idea what that feels like. It's like a place they haven't been to. It's a dark side. It's an abyss that you almost can't imagine if you haven't been there. And... And I should also say, actually, I didn't set out to write this novel thinking, oh, it's time I wrote about addiction and I feel brave enough now. Not at all. I think it's more, I was writing, trying to, I was writing a novel and there were all sorts of other things in it, which aren't in it now. Embarrassing things. It was about something quite different, actually, in a way. And I, this is how I write novels. I sort of write and I write. And as soon as it begins to feel more truthful and more exciting, I go with it kind of thing. But I don't sit down and plan anything. And this bit the stuff about addiction the stuff actually that the novel starts with about 
locking a child into the house because they're trying to get clean, which we did go through. Um, suddenly, when I wrote that down, I thought, yes, I want to, I need to write this. I need to write this down. And that's that beginning of the novel, which is very true in my mind, um, is what catapulted me into writing about it. Uh, but again, you know, as often, I mean, I, I don't know whether people believe me when I say this, but I was sort of almost startled to find I was writing about this because you could say it still wasn't a very good idea <laughs> at this stage. But that wilderness, you know, it's, it's a terrible black wilderness that parents are in who've been through this. And I have met and talked to over the years other parents who've had similarly addicted children. We all immediately know each other. We can immediately talk to each other. And it's a dialogue that you can't really have with anyone else. Because family and friends, they, they're they so well-meaning, but they don't understand. Um, you know, they actually are embarrassed sometimes. I even put a bit in the book where, you know, I... I think I put a bit where I say I can imagine a day might come where they might say, how's your daughter? And you'd say, oh, she died. And they'd say, oh, well, how's your work going or something? You know, people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to engage with it. And I wanted to write about that loneliness. I hope it's a book. It's a book about loneliness, actually, in a weird way. Yes, yes. I was going to say the way that you depict the isolation of this couple mm. as they cope with their daughter's addiction is really spot on uh, because like you say, people who are not going through this, why is it, I, this is a question I often ask, why is it so hard for human beings to imagine the circumstances of other human beings? It feels like a failure of imagination <laughs> and it wouldn't even really be that hard. Like, oh my gosh, these people have a daughter who is struggling with this deadly illness and has gone from the home and they're really sad about it. Like that seems like not, too big of a leap to have to make imaginatively to try to understand and empathize with somebody. And yet, like you say, people don't want to talk about it. They don't I even think, want to engage. No, I think they're either they're either frightened. And I think this is what some of the attacks on the lost child were. People are, are frightened. They don't want to know about something that might happen to them or that they might be under their noses and they haven't worried enough about or guarded enough against. And I think there was a bit of a witch burning when I wrote The Lost Child, you know, let's get rid, let's cancel this woman. Actually, cancelling wasn't even heard of then, but thank God. But let's cancel this woman and then this won't happen to us because she's wrong, she's bad, she shouldn't have said this about her son. And there was an element of that. But I think, to be fair, I think people are frightened. But I think also, and they're frightened in the same way that they are when you have cancer, but I think they're, they're also, they're quite well-meaning people are on the whole. I think they want to be able to say something and they sometimes think I won't say the right thing, so I'll say nothing. And actually, of course, we all know that when someone's going through a hard time, you must say something, always say something, don't say nothing. And don't say, I did, I did actually even have people come up to me after, a couple of years after the lost child and say, when I was reinstated as a good person again, and say, oh, I really felt for you. I thought about saying something, but I wasn't sure what to say. Or I thought you'd be inundated with emails, all this kind of thing. You know, and you think to yourself, yeah, that's so much the wrong response in my view. You should go and say something to people. But I don't know whether humans lack imagination. I think they're humans are such frail, scared little creatures, actually. If they haven't and also if they haven't I mean, been through difficult things. Some people some people are very lucky. Their families I think I wrote about this in the book too. You know, you see these people with children who all seem perfectly fine and everyone loves each other and it all seems wonderful. And their biggest problem is, you know, the piano teacher hasn't turned up or something. You know, it's unimaginable to me. But, you know, some people have very easy lives and good for them. That's true. That's <laughs> true. And I know from doing a bit of research that you personally 
uh, did not have the easiest childhood or relationships with your parents. Yeah. Uh, and there is uh, a very memorable dynamic between mother and daughter in this novel. Yeah. And it is a very strained and difficult but loving relationship. And there is a, a section of the novel where the narrator is on better terms with her mother. Yeah. And I wish I could like quote it, but it's beautifully written. When she's and in it's hospital. Like, yeah. When she's in the yeah. hospital. Yeah. And, and she has a mother and her mother in this kind of weakened state is warmer and even like genuinely mm. affectionate. And she, and the narrator suddenly feels the love of her mother mm. and it buoys her in such a way that she's elated yeah. and she's carrying herself different in a yeah. very fundamental and powerful way in the world. And it brings home a very important point that people who lack this sort of basic love and affection from their parents are moving through the world. Uh, it's like, uh, I don't want to say like at a disadvantage, it's almost like you're being weighted down or there's this great mm -hmm. absence. And the rest of us whose parents loved us, however flawed, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's flawed. Nobody's a yeah. perfect parent, but that basic love and care, we take it for granted. Yeah. People have parents who are loving and caring, take it for granted. And to think of what it would be like to be alive in the absence of that. Yeah. That's what it made me realize. Well, that's exactly. And so yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to write about. Was, I and that is true. I had both my parents. I mean, I luckily I can talk about my mother because she died while I was writing the book, actually. I don't know. She would have hated this book, even though, as you say, it is a loving relationship in some ways. I tried really hard in this book to find I have massive sympathy for her because she had a terrible upbringing, a terrible, lonely childhood. She literally was sent away to boarding school at the age of five. So the, the mother strand is actually all true in the sense that I didn't have to make anything up. And all the facts there are true. They really happened. And in a way, they're the most extraordinary, I think, in the book. But um, I was trying to find, uh, uh, yeah, I was, what to say? I think I was still processing my relationship with my mother and then her death while I was writing the book. Um, it is true that I have never had I've never had that thing that some people have, well, you maybe you have, of knowing that I've got two parents who always loved me and always did the best for me, even if it wasn't, you know, like you say, flawed. Neither of them, they both disliked me from quite an early age. I was problematic for them. They, my father rejected me completely by the time I was 18 and he killed himself later. But, and he, he is in the book too, but, and that's also true what's in the book. But my mother too, she didn't reject me, but she, competed with me, hated my writing, wanted me to do badly. She used to read out my bad reviews to me, things like that. And it was a very difficult relationship. And I only really got some, some sort of peace in the end by slightly estranging myself from her, which made me feel very guilty always. And when she died, it felt very, very sad. And I wasn't with her when she died. And she asked, she said, don't call they didn't want, she didn't want anyone to call me. And I was banned from attending her funeral, which also felt incredibly difficult, much more difficult than I thought it would, in fact. Yeah. And so in the book, if funnily enough, the hospital thing, it did really happen, but slightly differently because she had a stroke a few years ago, a sudden stroke out of nowhere, a mild stroke. And it changed her completely. She got her sense of humor back and she started loving me again. And I had about two years when, and it's exactly as described in that, although I don't mention the stroke. I knew what it was to have a mother again. And it was extraordinary how, as you're saying, it changed everything for me. It changed the way I felt when I 
walks around the house. It's, it changed the way I thought about things when I was out shopping and I would see things and think, oh my God, I could, I could get that for mum. And it was wonderful. And what happened was there, it lasted for, well, almost two years. And then very slowly she went back to how she'd been. And I think it must be, I don't know whether, it must be a recognised brain thing. Something altered in her brain after the stroke and then went back to how it had been before. And it was like... You're like, can, can you can you have another mild stroke? Would that be possible? Well, it's, <laughs> like, it's possible. I mean, yes, she may have had another mild stroke. It was really... And it was so... I mean, it sounds a bit like something in a novel, actually. The idea that this mother... I had a conversation with her on the phone because our relationship was mended. It was entirely mended. And she seemed to love me. And I think she did love me. I know my mother loved me. But she was able to be with me and be kind and caring and hug me and say nice things about me. She was excited about, you know, my books and things that I did. And I had never really had that. And I'd never had it. And it was so awful. I had one conversation with her on the phone and there was some, there was a coldness in her voice. And I put the phone down and said to Jonathan, it's changed. She's changed. It's coming back. And it was, it's very hard to explain what this coldness was. It would be a sort of, she used to have this tone of voice which was sort of she was waiting for me to do something wrong she was waiting for me to say something that would she could criticize and it was a really I was always on edge and as a child actually I was as well I was quite frightened of both my parents and I think what happened after my mother's stroke is I relaxed for two years it was amazing to relax and to not be worried about what what I was going to do or say but it might worry offend her in some way um so yes I put all of that into the book I just found myself putting it in and well I will say as a reader that as tough of a character as the mother is in this novel, I too found her very sympathetic. Oh, good. So, I'm really glad about that. Because no, because one or two, one or two reviewers or somebody, people have called her a monster. And it's really funny. I hate to hear someone call her a monster because she's my mom and I loved her. And actually I do, I still think about her. I think about her grave, the way I say in the book, I think about, I think about her a lot. And um, yes, I hate her to be called a mom. So I would love to feel that she comes over as sympathetic. She had such a deprived, miserable, neglectful childhood. And she, I don't think anyone really taught her how to be a parent, actually. She was only 21 when she had me. Not quite 21, actually. Yeah. And it's really nice that you feel that. Well, yeah. I think most writers would want their characters to be round and to have dimension. And yeah. I think you humanize that character. Like for as, as tough as she can be and as mean as she can be, as readers, we get to learn why. Yes. And you can't help but feel heartbroken for a kid at five years old who gets shipped away to boarding no. school. I mean, exactly. I cannot even imagine. I think I think my mother was a bully, but but we all know that bullies are actually scared, aren't they? They're scared people. So I think she was scared. And she was always scared. I think fear drove almost everything she did. And it's it's hard. I think and I think it was it made me very because of my upbringing, I, I think I I was, I've been, always been quite a maternal person. I've been very, I always wanted babies. I love children. And when I met Jonathan and we had three babies, I think I had such a, I felt that I might be undoing all that difficult stuff, which I think is why what we went through with drugs and stuff felt even worse, actually. It's like something happened to our family, the family I was so sure we'd managed to build and keep safe. Something happened to it which of course as a parent you blame yourself and I think so parental guilt something I've written about a lot in all my novels if I actually you know it's funny when people accuse me of being the worst mother in Britain and everything there's nothing actually that's an old I shouldn't keep saying that because that was an old headline but um, <laughs> there's that there isn't a single thing I've ever been accused of that I haven't already accused myself of somewhere in my books actually I think that is true 
I'm I'm very self self lacerating actually is what they call me, but I am. I'm the same yeah. way. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I'm like my own worst critic. I yeah. think a lot of us are this way. Yeah. And you know, to have been through as much as you've been through, like as just as a child, you know, having parents who were difficult to say the least, mm-hmm. and your father took his own life, like later in your life, I believe you were thirty. It was the, when the that night, happened. the night my daughter was born, he killed himself. It was New Year's Eve, but yeah, dramatic. So. I read in reading about this that you have never done proper therapy, and that that is interesting to me. But I, you know, that's everybody's choice. If you want to do therapy or not, I don't care. I think the question that I have for you <laughs> is related to the making of art and whether or not you feel like you derive therapeutic benefit from the books that you write, because. You do address this stuff on the page, as we've been discussing. There is a mother character that is related or inspired by your mother. There's a father character that's inspired by your father. And you kind of go at this stuff on the page in nonfiction. But you also, in your body of work, have made a habit of writing about things that you find difficult to imagine happening. You write into your fear as a general practice. and. I'm just wondering how you make sense of it. Like, because it's the, the kind of stuff that you went through as a kid and the kind of parents that you had would send most people to the couch, I feel <laughs> like, with, to talk to somebody. Yes. But you've managed to make it through and to be a functional adult and a loving mother and to have a happy marriage and all this kind of stuff uh, in the absence of it. Do you feel like the art is the thing that allows you to? move through and to get perspective and to uh, maintain some semblance of mental health, you know, despite having been through all this stuff and despite not having like a therapist? Oh, it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. I mean, I haven't ruled out therapy. In fact, my youngest son is really feels that I ought to have some therapy. I think he feels he's, he's now 30, but he's, he's read all my books and he's, He's worried. He worries sometimes and says, "Mom, you need to talk about this to someone." I haven't ruled out home therapy, um, I, although I did actually see a very, very wise counsellor a few years ago, soon after the lost child stuff, who was very good about giving me permission not to feel responsible for my mother, which I really needed someone to tell me that. You know, sometimes there's therapy, and then there's a wise person just saying the most obvious thing to you that no one's ever said, and she said, "This is an unhappy, angry woman, but you're not responsible for her unhappiness or her anger." And it was like a light bulb went on in my head. And I thought, no, I'm not. But I needed to be told that. It was, wasn't obvious to me. Um, in terms of writing, I think you're absolutely right. I have always written about the darkest things I can, the, the things that frighten me are what I write about. Um, I just do. For some reason, that drives my writing. And I do think being allowed to do that, and you know, I'm so lucky being published, being able to just about make a living out of it for all these years, has, has kept me happy. I'm not happy if I'm not writing and I need to write my novels. And I think there's a huge element of, of mental health benefit there. There's no question. I'm a happier person when I'm writing. Um, but I don't think it's therapy because really it's a bit what this novel is about because I don't think I can be trusted to tell the truth about my story. I think the things I write down, even in this novel, yes, to the best of my ability, I'm staring into the abyss and pulling out things that feel true and I certainly really sweat over that I work hard over that but that's not the same as what a therapist might ask me about or tease out of me or make me think about perhaps 
And, you know, I'm in charge. I think that's the other thing. I'm in charge of my novels, aren't I? So that's not therapy because I'm, I'm, I'm running the show and I can say anything I want. And I can, you know, I love my, one of my favorite things in the world is trying to make the unconvincing convincing. That's what I love doing. I really love doing that, actually. I've often in the past, some of my novels have been love stories. And I like to think of the least possible love story and then make someone feel it and write a story like that. I've loved writing things like that. So I don't think it is therapy. And I imagine that if I ever do have therapy, which I might, I'd find it a lot harder and perhaps not enjoy it very much and find it more uncomfortable. Um, And maybe that's maybe that makes me frightened a bit. Maybe I'm not quite brave enough to have therapy. And you're right. I have a very happy marriage and I love my kids and they're all okay now and they're wonderful children. But I wouldn't say my life has been straightforward. I might have had a sort of less unhappiness. There has been unhappiness. Maybe I'd have had less if I had therapy. I don't know. But but I don't know. I'm a real optimist. I'm always excited about life. I love life. That's the other thing. I'm not, I've never, ever suffered from depression. I'm quite the opposite. I wake up every single morning excited for the world. And that's been true, actually, whatever we're going through. So maybe that's another reason I haven't looked to have therapy. But I don't think I trust, I don't trust my writing as therapy. Maybe you should write a novel about a woman who goes to therapy. That could be the solution. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> I think the tr- the other the other trouble is I don't find therapy very interesting. It's a bit like people who write about their dreams. You know, it's sort of like I like writing about people who are really up against it and having to make decisions in real life with real people. And that's never what therapy is, is it? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess like maybe there could be some component or some some uh, like uh, side story yeah. connected to the therapy that could potentially I d- fulfill. I do that think role, actually, but... I do think both my parents needed therapy. My father was very depressed and I think, and I was too young to sort of really realize it and too wrapped up in my own family. And I think both of them could have, should have had therapy. And I think the difference between them and me actually is I would say both of them were unhappy and I'm not unhappy. It is true that I'm not unhappy. I think, I think that's the one thing I can truthfully say. I'm, I'm a very happy person. I'm not, but, it, but I'm also complicated and difficult and, you know, <laughs> got, got problems, but I am happy. Do you think that's because of just like lucky neurology, like neurochemistry? Yeah, I was born like this. Or... I used to irritate my mother. She used to call me Pollyanna. She used to say, "Why are you always so in such a good mood about everything?" And that was another thing I was. <laughs> that's another thing I was blamed for, actually. <laughs> um, but I was. I was like that right from a child. I used to get up early, go off on walks across the fields. I thought everything was wonderful. I loved my life. I mean, I was exactly the same as I am now, actually. So yeah. Okay, so I want to talk to you, I want to shift gears a bit, yeah. and I want to talk to you about your writing life. Mm-hmm. And something that I read about you that charmed me was that teenage Julie Meyerson was shy, but would exchange letters with authors. You would write to <laughs> your to authors that you admired, yes. including Daphne du Maurier. Like, can you talk about the, <laughs> the writers that you wrote to and what yeah. those exchanges were like? I, was, I don't know where that came from. I was... I was about 13 when I first wrote to Daphne du Maurier. I was, I was a third, no, when I was about nine, I, I ought to say I grew up in a family where no one had even been to, both my parents left school at the age of 15. No one had been to university. I was the first person to go to university. That's later on. But, and I was a child, you know, I wasn't especially good at school. I loved reading. And actually my mother did make me read. She, she got me excited about reading. So she, I owe her something for that. And I, I remember reading, I read, my, my mother's great big fat book of William Shakespeare had, I read Twelfth Night in that, and I was about nine years old sitting on the carpet in my bedroom. I remember it really well. And I can't have understood a word of it. I was nine. I just read this play. And then at the end of it, I literally remember thinking, I could do that. 
And so that was where I decided to be a writer. And I was literally nine years old. And by the time I was sort of 10, 11, 12, then I was a huge reader by then, but still not, not really doing very well at school. I mean, I was, you know, I was medium at school. I wasn't amazing English or anything. I was terrible at science and I wasn't that good at English. And I read, I think I was reading Daffy de Maurier. I used to bring her books home from the library. And it just never occurred to me that she wouldn't want to get a letter from me. So I wrote a letter, care of her publishers. And I think I said, I've still got her letters now, but I said something like, dear Daphne, I do like your books. I think you're a very good writer. And by the way, here's a drawing I've done of one of your, I think it was my cousin, Rachel, I sent her a drawing of. And, 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 and she wrote, the thing is, she wrote, I remember then waiting and waiting and waiting, sitting in Nottingham in our, in our house for a letter to come through the letterbox. And sure enough, a letter came through the letterbox with St. Austell, where she lived on it. And it was a postcard from her saying, I really like your drawing. And Thank you for the thank you very much for your card. And it had that's right. Thank you very much for your letter. I love the drawing. And the card she sent me had her address at the top. So, of course, I wrote another letter straight back to her. I mean, she was crazy. She sent me her address. <laughs> and so basically over about it was over a couple of years, actually, we exchanged about I've got about six or seven letters from her letters and cards. And I must have been so one of them says, Dear Julie, congratulations on your O-level results. In other words, I must have written to her telling her all my exam results <laughs> amazing I don't know where I got that kind of self-belief from but you know she, and she was wonderful and I much later I made a radio um, program about her and got to meet her son Kit and actually I got to go to the house that she was living in when she was writing to me at one of the times and have dinner there and I was so we went to have dinner there it was the it was a festival for Daphne de Maurier. I was a grown-up writer by now and when we got back to our hotel room I just burst into tears because I couldn't believe this had really happened to me because the 14 year old me would have just been so overwhelmed can you imagine it having dinner in Daphne de Maurier's house yeah. so I never met her and then meanwhile yes I wrote off to John Betchman who was the have you heard of him he was the poet laureate I've got a letter from him I don't know how many times I wrote to him but I've got a letter from him saying Dear Julie, facts up there on, on my shelf saying, Dear Julie, your your letter arrived just when poets are feeling most low, straight after breakfast. And it cheered me up immensely. And I and he he praised my poems. I'd often sent him a great sheaf of poems. And he wrote about my poems. And amazing. These the generosity of these people. And I have never ever not replied to a fan letter. I'm not that I get that many, but I have never ever not replied to somebody who writes to me. Because I have to, don't I? Well, when you said earlier that you were 13 years old and you were just certain that Daphne du Maurier was uh hoping yeah. it would be delighted to get delighted. a letter from you. Here's the truth. Here, here's the yeah. truth. She was delighted. Any writer is delighted to hear from readers. I don't know. I mean, I mean th she, but she used, there are very few. She used to get so many letters. Actually, I found this out later from Kit, her son, when I met him. She used to get sackfuls of letters, actually. She did. She was. She did write back mm. to all of them. But, you know, I, yeah, there was, I think he, I was the only one. I mean, it's very, very sweet, though, isn't it? It was hugely inspiring to me because it did make me think I was going to be a writer. And it's sad she died before my first novel was published. But of course, I would have loved to have sent her my first novel. And I would have done. And she wouldn't have remembered who yeah. I was, obviously. I wonder where her papers are kept. I wonder if maybe your old letters from childhood are somewhere buried in her papers. You could read what oh, you said. Very true. Yeah, they, prob they probably are, aren't they? Well, I, sort of, I half know what I said because of her replies. That's what I mean, is I know I sent her my O-level results because she thanks me for them. She, and she said to me a lovely thing. She said, I hope you get to live in your dream house one day because Menabilly was mine. You know, Menabilly that my, um, Rebecca is set in. I think it's Rebecca that's set in Menabilly. Is it? I can't remember. Anyway, Menabilly was the house she really loved, which she didn't stay in, in fact. But I love Daffy de Murray. I have actually written the introductions to several new editions of her books. I mean, a few years ago now. And it was wonderful to be able to do that. I think she's such a modern writer. But she's not underrated exactly, but people don't realise how dark she is. 
and how how sort of there's, there's a she's very modern there's a modern tone to her books i think mm. well yeah, i love her I, I mentioned earlier the various or some of the various themes at play in your novel addiction adultery uh, marriage parenthood mothers and daughters and just to continue on the line of conversation that we're on uh, we're not going to get to all of them, but I do want to talk a bit more about writing because this book is, as you said, I think you you consider it primarily to be a book about writing in some ways. In a way. I, perhaps that's how I want to see it anyway. Yeah. Yes. So there are things yeah. that I wrote down. I wrote down a few of the things that the character, uh, you know, the narrator in this book, who is an author, says about writing. And I want to, I'm assuming you share these opinions, I could be wrong. I do, but no, I do. I do. I want to. I want to yeah. read some of them aloud and then have us discuss them because I think a lot of people who okay. listen to this show are writerly and would probably be interested to hear. So one of the things she says is, "Quote: Writing a novel is often about narrowing your focus, making choices, eliminating things, and remember that you don't need to explain the whole narrative either, not to the reader." not even to yourself. Much of the real energy of a book often comes from the things that aren't said or entirely understood, sometimes even by the author herself. Yes, I believe every word of that. In fact, it was interesting. It's the first time ever that I've allowed myself to write about writing because I have tended to think in the past, and maybe to some extent still do think, that books about writers are boring you know, give the, give the person a proper job. <laughs> Don't write about a writer. So here I gave myself permission. Well, again, like all the decisions in my books, it just seemed to come. It seemed to be necessary to write about a writer. Um, and yes, I do believe that. But something you said earlier in our conversation had to do with not really knowing when you're working on a book, particularly in an early draft, not really knowing what it is. And No, I... I Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Well, I guess a question is like, to what degree do you not know? Like if you sat down to write this novel nonfiction, you had to have some sense that it was going to deal with the themes at play, right? Or did you just like, I don't, I don't understand no, fully I, what you actually, mean by not knowing what you're writing about. Yes. Because I, I, I started writing a book that it wasn't obviously called nonfiction, but what, I mean, how do I do it? I, I start writing something comes into my head, an idea, a scene, an image, something unexplained, something I don't really know what it is. And I see if I can write and see if it excites me. And with this one, I actually started, if I tell you that this book, I don't know if I should admit this, it originally had something to do with vampires. <laughs> this book began as a book that was slightly about vampires. That shows you how far I've come <laughs> by the time I finish nonfiction. And for a while that was working actually, or I thought it was but it wasn't. But I think I was wanting to write something dark about, about young people or teenagers. And, and that's how I somehow, I, I really can't say, I wish, I often wish there could be a camera on a writer because I'd like to see how certain writers wrote the books they wrote. But I, I don't make any notes. I don't plan anything. And I started to write the scene, as I said, about locking the daughter in the house and realised what I was writing, realised I was writing about something I'd experienced. And that's when it started to change as a book and slowly the vampire stuff went. But I do think that's right. I've always felt, I think this is in the book actually, that I don't, some writers write because they know what they want to say. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Many great writers write for that reason. And then other writers, and I don't think I'm the only one, 
write in order to find out what they want to say. And I definitely write in order to find out. If I knew what I wanted to say, I wouldn't really see any point in writing the book. In fact, years ago, I think it was my third or fourth novel, my husband, who's, who was a writer before me, he's really a dramatist, but he has published a couple of novels. He said, you know, you if you didn't spend all this time not knowing, just writing and writing and not knowing, you'd write your books much faster. He said, why don't you write a plan? And I was young enough and inexperienced enough that I believed him and I listened. And so I went away and wrote a plan of a novel and I showed it to him. And he said, brilliant, write it. It's a really good plot. It's a really good idea. And I went away, of course, and wrote a whole different book because why would I write that book when I'd already written the plotter. I just wouldn't. I I have to surprise myself with my writing. I have to not know what's going to happen. And I do have to be in the dark, as you in the, that quote you just read out. I need to be in the dark as much as the reader to some extent. And I, sometimes it's not until a book's published. In fact, sometimes it's not until a book's reviewed. It, when a reviewer writes about, sometimes a reviewer has written about the themes of one of my books and said, she, she as usual, it's about this or that and that. And I sometimes think to myself, oh, yes, it is. But I hadn't realized that. Right. It just hadn't even occurred to me. So sometimes it isn't until somebody reviews a book and tells me what it's about that I even know. I mean, I'm being a bit, that's not obviously entirely true, but it's kind of true. I don't, I just follow my nose. I kind of, um, it's I just literally put one word in front of another and and I must say I am very words are why I write I am very excited by sentences by the effect of one word or on, on another I spend I'm right in the middle of a novel now and I'm actually I think I've gone over the sentences I'm working on at the moment oh, I don't know well over a hundred times I mean that much that many times changing words back and forth making them feel right to me making the tone feel right making them feel true, but also making them feel exciting enough for me to work, write the next sentence. And that's how I write. And I spent ages and ages. And I hardly ever, I've never started a novel and not finished it because I never would, because obviously, because it's more like a problem I have to solve. So I'll write and write and write and keep going until the vampire novel turns into this novel and then it starts to work. So I'll just, I'll never abandon a book because the book I'm writing is the problem. It's what I am at that time that makes sense yeah it does make sense and i feel like <laughs> yes. i feel like what you just described shows up on the page for people listening who have not had a chance to read nonfiction is just so beautifully written and there is a music to it Thank that you. i loved and that felt consistent page after page line by line and you keep talking about recognizing when you're excited by what you're writing and i think this mm -hmm. is part of the skill of the writer that maybe doesn't get talked about enough is being able to self-evaluate and just having yes. that intuitive sense or that kind of visceral sense of when, like knowing when something is working. Some of us are yes. better at that than others. And you seem to I be, so you seem to be tuned in to when yeah. you are experiencing a sense of excitement. And that is the barometer for how you know when yeah. a piece of writing is worth pursuing. It absolutely is. I think I'm, I've always felt that I'm a very, very good editor of myself. And I know instantly whether something's a bit phony, a bit baggy, a bit not needing to be there, or, or whether it's something that's making me sit up and take, you know, take notice and say, yes, yes, this is going somewhere. This feels, and it is sort of about truth, actually, because I think I'm very impatient with other people's writing, by the way, I'm terrible. I'm such a picky reader, but I, I need to feel that I am being grabbed by the shoulder and told to listen and that I need to listen and I need to know exactly what's happening and if someone breaks off to describe the sky or the weather or something that doesn't need to be there or or to go upstairs or to have their breakfast I'm thinking no no get to the point because actually I think all really good writing 
has a focus to it, a, an energy that draws you straight through. In fact, I, th- I always think of it like a thread. It's like you start, if you start with a thread, with a needle and thread at the beginning of a novel, that thread has to stay absolutely taut, unbroken. It must never sag or go baggy until the very end when it lets go of you. I don't know if it's the right analogy, but that's how I think of it. And that's what I, I can't write. A, I cannot show anyone anything I've written. I write a lot of bad stuff, obviously, but I don't show anything to anyone until it feels taut in that way. Not even my husband, not anybody, nobody. I never talk about my work in progress. I never show a single sentence of it to anyone. I'm not really interested in anyone's opinion either, actually, because, again, I'm my own best editor. I know. And I'm, very, I'm quite tough on myself. I mean, I know I am. Hmm. I mean, that's, I don't, that's, something I don't that you're, to... that's something that your author, that you're the narrator of your novel, shares. I mean, you're saying a lot of the things that I have written down here that are said in the book. And <laughs> yes, I know. They are all true. I get that, though. I get not wanting to yeah. share. Like, what, what's the point of sharing something that's half-baked with somebody and yeah. asking their opinion on it, it's not going to help. I'm not even slightly interested in what someone else thinks of what I'm writing. <laughs> not until it's finished. Then I don't mind. Then I'm delighted to have readers and even even critics, because I review books. I'm a critic as well. And I'm absolutely up for being criticised and stuff. But before I've actually produced it, um, I couldn't I, I couldn't care less. I, it has to be, it's only me. I'm the only person I'm in the room with. To me, that's the excitement of writing, actually. It's a process that I do entirely alone. I'm entirely in control. It feels quite risky at times, but it, it's so exciting. Yeah, well... You realise, I do find it very... Well, you must find it exciting too. I find it so exciting. It is. And I think that when I'm when I'm contemplating nonfiction and the reading experience that I had with it, because for folks who have not read it yet, it is what we would refer to as a braided narrative. It works in short chapters or sec- short sections uh, within chapters. Mm-hmm. And it really moves, which I quite like. And there are different narrative threads that you're weaving together. There's the addiction thread, you know, the mother-daughter thread. There's an adultery subplot that you're uh, that you're writing about. And we kind of there's a fluidity to the read and the way that it lands on the page that feels related to what you were saying about this process of not knowing and this process of discovery in the act of writing day after day. It has that energy to it versus being a novel that was perhaps preconceived and outlined in great detail ahead of time, which, you know, that can work. That That can work, but I don't know if you could write a novel like this doing it that way. Like I could feel almost- No, I don't think you could. Yeah, I could feel like your process of discovery on the page as I was reading, or I had some intuitive sense of it. Oh, that's nice. That's very nice. I I love what you said about fluidity. That's exactly what I want. And I also, and I agree with you, I don't think people do talk enough about actual prose. You know, even in book reviews, people often don't talk about the prose. They talk about the content and and is the content all right and stuff. And I do think, I'm very excited by literally the effect you know, I call them sort of chunks, but you know, you get a chunk in my book about something and then there's a break and then the next bit. For me, I know where things ought to go. And the way I order them is I have to know that the bit that comes next, the next chunk, which might be out of, like you say, out of time, different, bit different about something different. It will have an effect on the bit you've just read. And the bit I've just read will also definitely affect the bit that's coming next. And when I say effect, it will, it'll alter the way you read it. It will it will sort of almost colour it in a strange way, almost literally colour it in some ways. I'll see it differently. I'm very, I really see the way, the shape of the words and the sentences actually means a lot to me as well. I literally visually, which I know is a bit crazy because actually most people don't think like that, but for me, they do. And 
so it will so I absolutely know it's almost like a I'm waiting to see what needs to come after a certain bit and when you when you put the right thing next it's a feeling like when you hit a ball in tennis and it's perfect you know that right where it hits the center of the racket that feeling where you can barely feel it that's perfect if you put something next that is trying too hard or a bit lumbering or maybe a bit boring or doesn't need to be there I get a funny jarring feeling about it and this is the best way I can describe it it just maybe it's like music I mean I'm not musical but it feels like hearing the wrong music totally um and that process is very it, it's not only very exciting to me but I it takes immense concentration actually to see and feel those slight differences I think when I am writing um, and I get, give myself such back I have to get up all the time actually because I'm in a complete my whole body gets, goes into sort of spasm while I'm writing I can't do anything except think it's a, it's very intense concentration but I find it extremely pleasant I love it mm. well I mean I think it's like it's like a drug at times it yeah well and I think what you describe with this tennis analogy I've I've compared it to golf same kind of thing but when you hit a perfect shot, I don't know what golf feels like. Yeah. yeah, but even you know, I'm not a golfer either. But I have hit a golf ball. Like I've gone to a, yeah. a driving range and I've crushed. Like just absolutely, <laughs> it feels great. It does. I don't yeah. care if you're not a golfer yes. or you're not an athlete. Like when you hit a golf ball and it yeah. sails like 250 yards or meters or whatever, like it's just like wow. Yeah. And this is what keeps us coming back as writers. Like those that, that feeling, feeling that feeling of connection where it's effortless. Yeah. doesn't happen all that often, but it happens enough for those of us who are lifers to keep us yeah. coming back and to endure all of the more common frustrations that go along with the Absolutely. process, you know? <laughs> also, I mean, as a reader too, when I read really good writing, it has the same effect on me. Not, it, it literally makes me boil inside. It's so wonderful. When I read a really good writer who's doing that thing, I suppose who's doing the thing that often it's the writer who's doing the thing that I would like to try to do, the thing I'm trying to do. When they do it and they get it, oh, it's like nothing else. I read very good writing that isn't what I'm trying to do as well. I'm, I'm, in, you know, I like reading writing that I could never write, but I do think it's very exciting to read someone doing what you want to do and they and they're doing it perfectly. I find that very inspiring indeed. Yeah, me too. It's another reason I write actually. Well, I think like, I think I, I, I'm sure somebody's probably addressed this in an essay or like even a scientific paper, but there was an effortlessness to reading your book and there's an effortlessness that I will experience when I'm reading books that I'm really into. You know, it's that feeling of just, mm. it's just flying by. And I think it's yeah. related to the quality of the writing and the, the care and the hundred, 200 times you go over every sentence. I think mm. some books are just undercooked. They, the writer just hasn't put that level, so agree, of, yeah. that level of care into it. But like, what is it about that experience of reading like what is happening to me psychologically? Because there are books that are well-crafted and admirable. Maybe they're not for me, quote unquote, but it's much slower going. It feels like- But do you think they're, I think maybe it's what I look for and it can come in all sorts of shapes actually. It isn't always when you expect it. It's that authorial authority. You, are, you, you just relax because you know you're in their hands and you know it's going to be fine, whatever happens. And it might not be something I'm even that interested in. But if, if the writing is like that, I will just go with it. Um, in fact, if, if, if I'm even inclined to, if something does that to me, even if it's slightly flawed, I'll forgive all the flaws because I love it so much. And I feel that about films and, and things too, actually. I, if something convinces me and takes me with it, in fact, I very much feel it about films, 
if later I read a review that points out a flaw, I'll think, yeah, no, I didn't even notice that. It's probably true, but I don't care. It's a bit like people, actually, when you fall in love with someone, you don't care about the flaws, do you? Right. It's the thing that pulls you through. <laughs> and um, no, yes, I do think you're right. I think many books are under-edited, probably by the authors themselves, as well as the publishers. But I, it amazes me how many books out there have too many boring bits, you know, literally bits that you skim through, even if you're quite enjoying the book, bits that don't need to be there. And I think what I do really try for in my novels is to not write a single sentence that someone would feel they could skim over because I don't think you should want to skim over anything in a book and I just do in I get impatient and you know I do there are books that I have really liked but I just know you can as you're reading you can tell there's a paragraph you don't necessarily need to take in fully well I hate that I don't think that should ever be the case yeah so I'm always trying to not write a boring sentence I suppose well, I think you did it in this book, at least from my perspective. I so <laughs> I so enjoyed reading it, and I loved the vitality of it and the way that it felt. Like I always call it, I mean, this is a little bit of a crude turn of phrase, but I always call it, there's blood on the page. It felt like <laughs> you really had something to say in this novel, mm -hmm. and it felt like deeply lived in and human in its concerns, and it's rendered beautifully. Mm -hmm. So- Congrats to you. I'm very happy that we got to spotlight it in the book club. And I always Thank end. Thank you so much. I, yeah, it's my pleasure. And I always end by asking my guests if they are working on something else. You alluded to it earlier. It sounds like you have a novel in progress. Is there anything yeah. you can tell us about it? Like just, I know you don't talk about your work, but it like just a hint. <laughs> <laughs> what could I tell you? It's, well, all I can say is it's very different from nonfiction. But when I wrote nonfiction, something changed in my writing. I, I leapt, I took a step somewhere, which has really excited me. And this is still, I'm still there in the place that I took a step to. So in that sense, if people like nonfiction, I think they'll like this book. That's all I can say, though. It's very different. I try, I mean, in my head, all my novels are entirely different from each other. It's only I look back sometimes, I think, no, you're still doing the same thing. You know, we all do have the same story we tell in some ways. And I think I probably am telling the same story, but it feels very different. And it feels a bit like a risk in the same way that nonfiction did feel like a risk to write, actually. And is that the place? So, it was like the place that you felt like you stepped to in writing nonfiction was a place of of maybe being more uh, risky on the page or taking more personal risk? Yes, perhaps. I, um, that's a very interesting question. That's one thing. I wonder what the answer to that is. I, I took a step somewhere and was... You know, just as hard on myself, because I'm always quite hard on myself when I'm writing. I, It didn't fit. I mean, it is more personal, but it wasn't really that. I think. Some of it took me a very long time. The book, actually, for quite a short book, took me a very long time to write. And I think I really wrestled with it. And actually, I don't normally wrestle with my books. I think once I once I know where a novel is going. Then I get that exciting feeling we've been talking about and it just goes. This one wasn't like that, actually. I, I doubted this book again and again and again. And and actually, the reception in the States has been wonderful so far, but it wasn't entirely wonderful here. The people were much more mixed about it. And I think I knew that might happen. So I wrestled with it. It, it seemed to cost me, perhaps that's it, it seemed to cost me something personally, even though I wasn't sure it was that personal in a way. It both is and isn't personal, as we've discussed. But it seemed to, yes, that's, sorry, I finally got there. Yeah. It seemed to cost me something that my other books haven't cost me. But it's not the obvious thing. I mean, I know people will listen to that and say, okay, well, what it cost her was she wrote some real stuff. But actually, no, it was something different. I had to go somewhere in myself to write it that was slightly uncomfortable. Not therapy, but some, somewhere that felt 
quite painful to be there, I suppose. No one's ever asked me that question before, so I'm literally saying it. I'm, I'm working it out as I talk to you. But yeah, it cost me something. There is blood on the page. Well, congratulations. Uh, thank you so much for the time and best of luck on this next project, which shall remain mysterious. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. All right, folks, there you go. That was my conversation with Julie Meyerson. Her latest novel is called Nonfiction, available from Tin House. It is the official January pick of the Other People Book Club. A reminder that if you want to sign up for the book club, get a book delivered to your door every 30 days, you can do that over at otherppl.com. Sign up, join the club. If you would like to find Julie Meyerson on the internet, I believe she is on Instagram. I think that's the place. So check it out. Once again, her novel is called Nonfiction. It is superb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. I would love it if you subscribed to my weekly email newsletter. You can do that for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. If you like this show, if you enjoy the work that I do, please join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. And if you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever it is, rate the show. If it's possible to write a little review, write a little review. It helps the show in the rankings. It helps it find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt or a baby clothes, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Okay, so coming up on Wednesday, there will be a new episode, but it's TBD as to who the guest will be. I'm going to leave you in suspense once again as I get my ducks in a row here in early 2024. So new episode coming on Wednesday, fingers crossed. Stay tuned.